Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Pay-Per-View. 50 Not Out Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in the weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is climate change. This is in The Independent. International treaty needed to stop big food industry driving obesity and climate change, report says. Lobbying by multinational corporations and trillions in government subsidies for unsustainable agriculture and fossil fuels are driving obesity, malnutrition and climate change, a major report has warned. Taxes on red meat and subsidies for more efficient crops that could feed many more people are among the measures proposed by the Lancet Commission on Obesity Report. Drafted by an international panel of 43 biologists, climate scientists and policy experts, it also calls for a global treaty to limit the influence of big food, which is hamstringing moves to more sustainable diets and lifestyles. Similar measures were agreed to limit the influence of tobacco companies in health policy. The similarities with big tobacco lie in the damage they induce and the behaviours of the corporations that profit from them, author Professor William Deitz from George Washington University said. The report published in The Lancet comes after a separate commission proposed a planetary health diet which called for red meat to be limited to the equivalent of one burger a fortnight. While industry groups said the latest proposals would see the cost of everyday essentials rise, climate change will also drive up prices from crops lost to droughts and flooding, meaning many more may go hungry. The food system generates 25-30% to 30% of greenhouse gas emissions and cattle production accounts for over half of those, the report says. Until now, undernutrition and obesity have been seen as polar opposites of either too few or too many calories, said Professor Boyd Swinburne, co-chair of the commission. In reality, they are both driven by the same unhealthy and equitable food systems. Underpinned by the same political economy, they are single-focused on economic growth and ignores negative health and equity outcomes. Climate change has the same story of profits and power, he added. Sugar taxes, pioneered in Mexico and now implemented in the UK and beyond, have sparked a major industry pushback, with $50 million spent in 2016 to 2017 to lobby against national sugar reduction schemes. Chilean Senator Dr Guaido Girardi helped spearhead initiatives in 2011 to curb junk food advertising in his country, where three-quarters of adults are overweight or obese. This was not without a great deal of resistance, of course, he told the Commission. The food industry, marketing companies and politicians of the opposition alike all claimed that there was no valid basis for the law. Chile increased taxes on drinks with high levels of sugar in 2014. Kay Johnson-Smith, president and chief executive of the annual Agriculture Alliance, said U.S. farmers are reducing greenhouse emissions to record lows. The Lancet Obesity Commission ignores evidence of meat and dairy's contribution to healthy, sustainable diets. He added, experts in nutrition and the environment have repeatedly warned these radical recommendations are counterproductive and have serious negative consequences for the health of people in the planet. A spokesperson for the International Council of Beverages Association said, beverage companies agree that the global challenge of obesity demands meaningful, practical solutions. We have taken significant innovative steps to support sugar reduction. We have long believed in the importance of partnerships and collaborations in our communities around the world and find it unfortunate that the authors of this article take a restrictive and exclusionary approach to broad problems. And there's another article here, also in the Independent, from the 17th of January, called Planetary Health Diet. Developed countries must cut red meat eating by 80% to protect Earth. Scientists have drawn up a planetary health diet to safeguard the Earth from environmental disaster and ensure enough food is available for its booming population to stay healthy. 
This would require red meat consumption to halve across the world, but fall by more than 80% in developed countries like the US and UK, the study says. Dairy and sugar consumption would also need to decrease drastically, while the proportion of nuts, fruit, vegetables and legumes like lentils and chickpeas needs to double. If this is achieved, it can minimise the damaging effects of climate change, deforestation and the loss of animal and plant species while preventing 11 million premature deaths a year. We are currently getting this seriously wrong, Professor Tim Lang, one of the authors from City University of London, said. We need a significant overhaul, changing the global food system on a scale not seen before, in ways appropriate to each country's circumstances. While this is uncharted territory for policymakers, it is not impossible, Mr Lang added. The world's population is expected to reach 10 billion by 2050. But people's health and the planet's scarce resources are being put under increasing strain by a shift towards high-calorie Western-style diets. Health campaigners have already called for meat taxes to save lives, but the Eat Lancet Commission is the first to propose a diet on environmental grounds as well. It brought together 37 experts from 16 countries specialising in health, nutrition, environmental sustainability, economics and politics to look at how a balance could be struck. The solution, based on three years of statistical modeling is a diet consisting of around 35 percent of calories obtained from whole grains and tubers and protein mostly derived from plants while permitting variations based on local needs and culture the recommendations published in the lancet medical journal would require meat to become a weekly or fortnightly treat rather than a daily staple the shift to sustainable food production requires food waste to be cut in half and no more additional land to be turned over to agriculture, as is happening with rainforests destroyed for cattle ranching and palm oil production. To achieve this, livestock and fishing subsidies would need to be abolished, with the expansion of marine conservation zones and changes to shopping habits in developed nations, as well as protections for low-income groups. Professor Johann Rockström from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany, who co-led the commission, said this would require nothing less than a new global agricultural revolution. There is no silver bullet for combating harmful food production practices, but by defining and quantifying a safe operating space for food systems, diets can be identified that will nurture human health and support environmental sustainability. The article goes on. Free market groups in the meat and dairy industry accused the authors of pushing for the nanny state and said meat and dairy were a key part of good dietary health after the Lancet report found key claims such as dairy being an integral for bone strength were often not borne out in large studies, say the authors, anyway. The article goes on. Alexander Anton, Secretary General of the European Dairy Association, said the report goes to the extreme to create maximum attention but we must be more responsible when making serious dietary recommendations. Milk protein has been recognised scientifically and in EU legislation as the most valuable protein for human consumption, he added. Well, when you're talking about international treaties and international policy and international law, International law is a phrase that's often used, and if you want a world government, you need international law to introduce its global law and policy. And that's the agenda, as I've said before. Climate change is a vehicle for justifying a world government to solve the problem, and international law and policy change to that end. And I've talked about climate change before in episodes 18 and 29. I've said before that climate change is a massive hoax to transform human society and that one of those transformations is justifying the smart city's agenda. And I wonder, you know, 
whether the sudden promotion in the media and society in general for veganism and eating less meat is to advance this agenda. The Hunger Games Society, which I talk about in episode 4, requires the population to be herded into the cities and away from rural land and countryside, and this includes farmers. That's why efforts are constantly being made to clear the land of people, rural land, and get them into the cities. As I say, I've talked about climate change before, and I've quoted studies, but when you're trying to sell a lie and a manufactured problem in terms of the cause of it and, to an extent, the effects of it, then the more desperate you become for people to believe it and to justify change in society on the back of the lie, then you're going to come out with some ridiculous claims. And there's an article here in the... That doesn't mean to say that everybody who talks about human-caused climate change knows it's a lie. Many of them won't. The more desperate you become, the more ridiculous the claims are going to be. This is in The Independent from January, 31st of January. American colonization killed so many people it triggered climate change, study suggests. The arrival of Europeans in the Americas left a trail of death in their wake that also triggered a period of climate change, according to a new theory proposed by British scientists. A University College London team estimates that 55 million indigenous people died following the conquest of the Americas that began at the end of the 15th century. The majority of these deaths resulted from diseases brought to the new shores by the settlers, which are thought to have wiped out up to 90% of the native population. In the years that followed, war, slavery and societal collapse exacerbated these problems, leaving much of the landmass to void of people. Apart from the enormous scale of tragedy, this led to 56 million hectares of land previously set aside for farming being abandoned. As the land was rapidly reclaimed by trees and vegetation, the plant life sucked such an enormous amount of CO2 from the atmosphere that the earth cooled. There was a marked cooling around that time, 1500s to 1600s, which is called the Little Ice Age. And what's interesting is that we can see natural processes giving a little bit of cooling. Co-author Professor Mark Maslin told the BBC, but actually to get the full cooling, double the natural processes, you have to have this genocide generated drop in CO2. I mean, what is this rubbish? Genocide generated drop in CO2. These people get paid to come out with this crap. The article goes on. The Little Ice Age was a period in European history noted for plummeting temperatures when rivers across the continent, including the Thames, regularly froze over. According to Professor Maslin and his colleagues, support for a link between this period and the great dying of indigenous American peoples comes from Antarctica. Ice core records from the polar region contained air bubbles that reveal a drop in concentration of atmospheric CO2 around this time. Besides the sudden drop in human population, the scientists said the changes in climate also coincided with fluctuations in charcoal and pollen deposits collected from the Americas. Professor Ed Hawkins, a climate scientist at Reading University who was not involved in the work, said it was evidence that human activities affected the climate well before the Industrial Revolution began. Humans began pushing global temperatures in the opposite direction when they started burning fossil fuels and pumping large quantities of CO2 into the atmosphere, according to the official story anyway. The article goes on. If any lesson can be taken from their study for today's efforts to tackle climate change, the researchers say it was the scale of changes needed to make a difference. Well, that's the idea. Invent a global 
problem and that will justify a global solution which is the world government and world policy change and the Hunger Games Society as I explain in episodes 18 and 29 the article goes on they said the decline of America's indigenous population meant an area roughly the size of France was reforested sucking out CO2 roughly equivalent to just two years of fossil fuel emissions well I've said before that believe it or not I know it seems crazy to say it, but the sun affects Earth temperature. Now, I know that's a big revelation, but it does. And it turns out, wouldn't you know, that the Little Ice Age and the medieval warm period were caused by decreased and increased solar radiation. That's what caused the Little Ice Age. I've talked before about what's known as the Maunder minimum, which was a prolonged sunspot minimum, a period of prolonged sunspot activity, basically, a period of prolonged minimal sunspot activity for the period around 1645 to 1715. And the NASA Earth Observatory notes three particularly cold intervals. One that started around 1650, another around 1770, and the last in 1850, all separated by intervals of slight warming. And there was the Sporer minimum, which is said to be a hypothesized 90-year span of low solar activity from about 1460 until 1550. And it occurred before sunspots had been directly observed. Because it's the sunspot cycle, as I've talked about before, drives the explosions of energy from the sun some of which can be enormous in size which then obviously reaches the earth and affects temperature and there's a paper called on a role of quadruple component of magnetic field in defiling solar activity in grand cycles and there's four scientists who worked on it from different universities and one of them from the Russian Academy of Sciences. One of them from Lomonos of Moscow State University, Schmidt Institute of Physics of the Earth at the Russian Academy of Sciences. Department of Mathematics, Physics and Electrical Engineering, Northumbria University, UK. School of Engineering, Bradford University, UK. And the Department of Physics and Mathematics in Hull University, UK. And in this paper they say... The longest direct observation of solar activity is the 400-year sunspot number series, which depicts a dramatic contrast between the almost spotless Maunder and Dalton minima and the period of very high activity in the most recent five cycles because it's all caused by the sun. So you can have all the carbon emissions you like or none at all. It ain't driving climate change. And... Someone asked me once, incredibly, I mean, I've heard some statements and things said about the information I talk about over the years, but this one kind of took me aback. Someone said to me, and I can understand it because they don't look at this information, but they said, what do the elite that I talk about, those in power, and I call them the elite, what do they think about climate change? And... Of course, it took me aback because 
I know that they know it's a scam, and more than that, they're the ones behind it. Through their organisations and front people, like politicians and on-the-take scientists, people like Al Gore pushing the lie, because climate change, as I've talked about before, justifies so much of the elite's agenda, and that's why they're the ones behind it. And, as I've said, not everybody pushing the lie will know it's a lie. Only some of them will. Most of them won't. And people campaigning for climate change action are only calling for the building of their own prison. Now, if they want to do that, that's fine. That's their choice. Don't recommend it, but that's the choice they make. But the problem with that is there's no halfway house. If climate change action is enacted and policy change and changes in society... It doesn't just affect the people calling for it. It affects everyone. That's the problem with it. And most people won't know, A, that it's a scam, and B, what will be justified in its name. That's why getting informed before calling for climate change action is important. And in fact, if people were informed, they wouldn't be calling for climate change action because they'd know that it ain't humans causing it. But if you can persuade people it is, then you can justify the change in society that you want, which is a transformation of human society of the most extraordinary kind in ways that I've explained before, including episodes 18 and 29. And there are environmental problems we should be focusing on. And if the focus and effort that was put into tackling human-caused climate change was put into tackling those problems, then we'd have a much better environment. But instead, they're diverted away from being tackled by all this human-caused climate change nonsense. And climate change is one of the biggest vehicles for almost everything that the elite's agenda wants. And that's why it gets the support that it does. And the next subject this week is Hollywood and paedophilia. This is in the Daily Mail. I was raped of my innocence. Corey Feldman accuses Hollywood of ignoring paedophilia problem and demands justice for victims like me in an emotional article where he calls for the end of statutes of limitations. Corey Feldman has accused Hollywood of ignoring a systemic paedophilia problem but making amends for its treatment of women in an emotional article where he describes being abused as a child actor and calls for justice for other victims. The former actor, 47, wrote an article on NBC, which was published on Monday to announce his role as the ambassador for the charity Child USA. In the article, he calls for an end to the statute of limitations which render many cases of historic sexual abuse impossible to prosecute because too much time has passed. Repeating claims he has been making for years that he and his friend, the late Corey Hain, were raped as child actors. Feldman said he was raped of his innocence and was now demanding justice for other children. What has happened to children in my industry was by and large ignored and at this point has been all but brushed under the rug. Hollywood seems much more ready to accept responsibility for what it's done to women than they are willing to face that there is still a deep-seated virus within this industry. And most unfortunately, it's not an industry-exclusive disease, but also affects other parts of our culture. Well, when Corey Feldman says they're making amends for the way women were treated, he's talking about the Me Too movement. And I talk about Me Too in episode 27. And why, in my opinion, they're headline-grabbing, virtue-signaling frauds. Anyway, the article goes on. Corey Feldman wrote, I was raped to my innocence. 
as was Corey Hayman. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. For me, the only real justice is to hopefully one day see those guys that did this stuff to us face the consequences that they deserve. Feldman decried the statute of limitations which applies in many states, explaining that it takes years for child sex abuse victims to understand what has happened to them, let alone consider pressing charges. The problem right now is that by the time that children have the wherewithal to know that something was wrong, to know that something wrong was done to them and have the strength to admit it to their peers or to their family, it's far too late in many states to take the perpetrators to court, either criminally or in civil suits. They're in situations like I am, or in situations like my best friend Corey Hayne was in, where we never got the chance to face our abusers. Justice can never be served to survivors because of the statute of limitation laws, he wrote. New York is due to pass a bill on Monday which will make significant changes to its historic sexual assault laws. Under the Child Victims Act, victims will be allowed to press charges against their abusers until they are 28 years old instead of 23, the limit until recently. They will also be able to pursue civil action against abusers until they are 55. Most significantly is that the state is opening a one-year, one-off window for anyone whose case has previously fallen outside the statute of limitations to seek justice. Feldman praised the move in his piece but said more still had to be done across the country. He complained about the reaction he received when he launched an online fundraising campaign asking for $10 million to fund an expose on Hollywood pedophiles and said he was expecting friends and colleagues to pick up the phone and throw money at him when he launched it. Slightly ambitious, isn't it? Good reason, but slightly ambitious. The article goes on. He says, however, a year ago, the reaction from Hollywood when I launched a campaign to make a movie based on my book, Choreography, was not what I expected. I really thought at that time that I would get hundreds of calls from all of my colleagues, from all of my associates, saying, oh my God, we didn't even know or we heard about this. What can we do to help? How do we get involved? Let me help you get this film made. This needs to happen. I didn't get much of that. Nobody handed over a million dollars or two million dollars or five million dollars and said, let's get this movie made. Well, it's a lot of money. The article goes on. Feldman continues. That was something that I was really expecting to happen. That's how Hollywood normally works, even when you're trying to go against the grain and get a dangerous truth out through a movie, he said. Feldman added that he had since set to work on his own documentary, Truth, at the Rape of Two Corys. We've spent the last year working diligently to get it done the right way, and I'm very proud of what we've got, he said. Feldman did not make mention of the attempts on his life he believes have taken place to try to silence him since he started speaking out on the issue. Well, I can understand why Feldman wants protection and wants, obviously, money to fund the legal side of things, and that's understandable. But at the same time, there's another way to look at it, which is, were anything to happen to Corey Feldman, it would just give credibility to what he's saying. So any attempt on his life is counterproductive. Or any attempt to seriously injure him or harm him is counterproductive. You know, it's about running at these people, not away from them. There's absolutely no doubt that paedophilia is rampant in Hollywood. I've been aware of this for a long time now. Not only because anything goes in Hollywood where there are no limits on the scale of depravity, but also because paedophilia is fundamentally connected into a form of child abuse, which is very little known but widely known about in Hollywood. And you can't really talk about paedophilia in Hollywood without talking about mind control. It's rampant in Hollywood and the entertainment industry in general. And paedophilia and mind control are fundamentally connected. I've talked about mind control before in the pilot episode and episode 9. Paedophilia is so connected to mind control because it's trauma-based mind control. And paedophilia is obviously a way to traumatise kids. And it's one of the major ways the victims of trauma-based mind control are traumatised. There are several reasons people are mind controlled, and being a puppet performer is one of them, especially in Hollywood. 
entertainment is one of the biggest industries in the world. And if you're the elite, this elite that I talk about, less than 1% owns through corporations and in other ways, the entertainment industry. Zionists, revisionist Zionists. I talk about Zionism in episode 10 and other episodes. And that's fundamentally connected to the Rothschilds, which are the top elite family bloodline. Owns Hollywood, and don't just take my word for it. This is from an article in the Los Angeles Times from columnist Joel Steen. He said, the Jews, I would say Zionists, revisionist Zionists, are so dominant, I had to scour the trades to come up with six Gentiles, which means someone who's not Jewish, in high positions at entertainment companies. The sixth AMC president, Charles Collier, turns out to be a Jew, I would say Zionist again. As a proud Jew, I want America to know of our accomplishment. Yes, we control Hollywood. And when you hear people talking about, oh, the Jews control this, the Jews control that, it's revisionist Zionists that control this or that. That's the point. Working on behalf of the global Zionist network. But when you point that out, apparently you're anti-Semitic. Well, who cares? It's true. The elite control Hollywood and the entertainment industry in general. And as such, they're not going to just let the performers, some of them, mega famous, just say and do whatever they like. This elite network does not do leaving things to chance. And while there are things that can happen that surprise the establishment and surprise them, like Brexit, for example, just shows what a difference the people can make if they choose to. Overall, the elite don't like leaving things to chance. And so, because of their mentality, they just can't deal with that. They can't deal with given the influence that celebrities have and entertainment has over people, they want to make sure that performers are not going to cause problems for them, or at least most of them aren't anyway. And that's where mind control comes in. They want to make sure that at least many are going to do and say what suits them and what suits their agenda and basically be a puppet for them and their agenda. Mind control is the way this is achieved. Corey Feldman is not the only one to have talked about the dark side of Hollywood. Elijah Wood from Lord of the Rings has also talked about the dark underbelly, as he called it, of Hollywood and a paedophilia scandal on the scale of the Jimmy Savile scandal in Britain. Jimmy Savile was a record-breaking paedophile in Britain. I've talked about Jimmy Savile in episode 27 and his relevance to the British establishment. Elijah Wood later said that he's got no personal experience or knowledge of this and he was talking about it after he read something and saw a documentary but it's amazing how many times people come out and say things if they're famous or well known that other people have been saying for years and then they say oh I didn't mean it or I meant this or I only said it because of that. Angelina Jolie talks in a video on YouTube about a satanic ritual she took part in and Sammy Davis Jr of Rat Pack fame, was a member of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. Satanic themes and symbolism and secret society symbolism are placed into entertainment constantly because the language of the subconscious mind is imagery. Subliminals work on the same basis. If the conscious mind misses a subliminal, the subconscious notices it anyway, and eventually it filters through to the conscious mind as a thought or a perception, depending on the meaning of the subliminal or symbol and the intent behind it. Another reason satanic themes are placed into entertainment 
is to make it seem more familiar so people won't be so shocked by it. Satanism and paedophilia and mind control are fundamentally connected. A woman called Jennifer Green, who went by the name Arizona Wilder, has talked about how she was mind controlled when she was a kid. Not in Hollywood, but she was mind controlled when she was a kid. And she says that part of her experience was being mind controlled to conduct satanic ritual for very famous people, including the British royal family. I've talked about the royal family before in relation to paedophilia in episode 27. Satanic ritual, according to one researcher who's looked at this intensely, is also part of the process of traumatizing the victim as part of the trauma-based mind control. So Satanism, paedophilia and mind control are all fundamentally connected. It doesn't mean to say at all that every paedophile is a Satanist. It doesn't mean every Satanist is a paedophile. It doesn't mean to say that for one second. But what I'm saying is, overall, the three do go together in mind control. Not necessarily in every case, but they do go together overall. I can understand Corey Feldman looking out for himself. That's understandable. At the same time, imagine what a contribution he could make if he did just come out and talk about it. If he came out and talked about his experiences and the people that he says he knows abused him that are in the entertainment industry, what's worse, the consequences for him or the consequences of not talking about it when he has the chance? One of the reasons the abuse is dismissed and people find it hard to grasp is that they cannot perceive that abuse of this nature or on this scale would go on. But it does go on. In terms of the legal side of all this, the legal system is a total stitch up in favour of the state, the system, the establishment. Taxpayers fund the state, and when taxpayers want to take the state to court, a representative of the state or an organisation or whatever, as well as having already paid the state's legal bills, they also have to pay their own. If a case affects the state or threatens to expose this network I'm talking about, then it's a cinch to find a judge who will give the right verdict, not least because of judges and the legal system in general's fundamental connection to secret societies like the Freemasons and the Knights Templar. There are three temples, the Honourable Society. They call it the Honourable Society anyway. The Honourable Society of the Lower, Middle and Inner Temple. They correspond to the levels of a barrister and they are all connected to the Knights Templar. The levels a barrister has to reach to be called to the bar and to practice as a barrister. So the network is, in terms of the legal side of things, weighted in the state's favour, the establishment's favour. Also, as I explained in episode 21, those in positions of authority and the decision makers in society perceive from the perspective of the state, not least because of the education system, as we call it, so anyone challenging the state, the judge is most likely to side with the representatives of the state because they're coming from the same perspective, the same perception. And I explain that in more detail in episode 21. The state always sees the state as the arbiter of truth and the way that things should be done. This is why when a family, for example, a couple who want to give their child a different medical treatment and they're not being given permission by the NHS and they go to court, the judge is most likely going to side with the state because that's the perception 
of the judge and that's the perception of the state and because the state says this is the best thing to do the judge is going to go with it because they're both coming from the same perspective you know the state knows best the establishment knows best that's basically the perspective the law change that Feldman is talking about should in my opinion be enacted of course how can there be a time limit on cases of abuse the victims have to live with the abuse for the rest of their lives so why should there be a time limit the time limit however suits the abusers of course and those in the satanic and pedophile rings the reason there is a cover-up of pedophilia satanism and by satanism i mean satanic ritual and child sacrifice and mind control is not just to protect the perpetrators but because paedophilia, Satanism and mind control are fundamentally connected and if a genuine investigation took place into any one of them, especially in Hollywood, very quickly that investigation would either eventually lead into one of the other two or both of them. That's why there's the cover-up. It's not just to protect the people responsible, but mind control is obviously operated at the intelligence arena level, the intelligence networks. And so it has fundamental links to the deep, deep state, the power beyond government, the less than 1%, the elite, as I call them. And so the entire edifice will be under threat of exposure. And so paedophilia must be covered up to prevent that happening. And to ensure the ed entire edifice of global control and manipulation is covered up, and that's why it needs to be exposed and talked about. And the next subject this week is... Eurovision. This is in the Daily Mail. Britain's chief rabbi defends Israel's right to host Eurovision after BDS movement calls for this year's contest to be relocated. The chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, has defended Israel's right to host this year's Eurovision Song Contest after calls for the venue to be changed. Mervis, the Jewish community's most senior religious figure in the UK, said anti-Israel campaigners in the BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, could damage the cause of peace by calling for the 2019 event to be relocated. He told the Mail on Sunday, Whereas peacemakers seek dialogue and common ground, for more than a decade the BDS movement has pursued a campaign of division and demonization. Well, it's the BDS movement that is calling for an end to apartheid in Israel. In other words, division. And it's Zionism working on behalf of Israel, that does the demonizing in ways I'll get to in a minute, and I've talked about before. Anyway, the quote goes on. Cause for the Eurovision Song Contest to be moved from Israel will ultimately harm and not help the cause of peace. I call upon those advocating for BDS to turn their efforts towards collaboration and reconciliation. His intervention came just days after 50 public figures, including actors Maxine Peake, Miriam Margolius and Julie Christie, fashion designer Vivian Westwood and filmmakers Mike Lee and Ken Loach signed an open letter calling for the contest to be moved to another country because of human rights violations. Several of the signatories are BDS supporters. Israel won the right to host this year's event due to take place in May because its act Netta Barzillai won last year. Goodness knows how that song won. It was ridiculous. Anyway, the article goes on. The European Broadcasting Union had hoped the choice of Tel Aviv as the host city over the more contentious option of Jerusalem would quell opposition, but campaigners insist that holding it anywhere in Israel is counter to the spirit of the event. In their letter, the celebrities noted the selection of Tel Aviv, but said this does nothing to protect Palestinians from land theft, evictions, shootings, beatings and more by Israel's security forces. 
Well, this support for Eurovision to either be relocated or to boycott Eurovision if it goes ahead in Israel would not have anything to do with Israel being an apartheid racist state by any chance, would it? More and more people are becoming aware of the true nature of the Israeli regime and its genocide of the Palestinian people and are boycotting Israel and possibly even talking about Israel and its human rights abuses. This is an example of the boycott movement gathering against Israel. The BDS movement is a well-known example of this movement and it's a global movement promoting different methods of boycotting Israel. One method of boycott is to refuse to buy products originating from Israel. Apparently there's a certain number on the barcode. I don't know if this is the case in every country but apparently in certain places it is. The BDS basically wants justice, fairness and equality for Palestinians. They're an organisation which really wants protection of people. Not like these Zionist groups who only want protection of their own while outrageously using and exploiting Jewish people, including those who were tortured and died in Nazi Germany, to achieve their goal. These Zionist groups are not working for Jewish people, they're working for the Zionist cabal, and they're a breathtaking affront to Jewish people everywhere. The genocide against Palestinians and the destruction of Palestine and Syria and other places is one thing, and I explain the reason for this in episode 48. But Israel is a racist state in another way. It's an apartheid state because of the Jewish-only West Bank settlements in illegally occupied land in Palestine. Also in the West Bank is the security barrier, or war in truth. It's called a security barrier, but in truth it's a war separating Israelis and Palestinians. It's apartheid. In response to the gathering awareness, criticism, boycotting of Israel, There are revisionist Zionist groups who go around lying about their targets and their targets are those challenging Israel's actions. In truth, the Zionism's actions. Because it's not the Israeli people doing all this, it's Zionists. It's the Zionist movement operating out of Israel, ultimately, although it operates all over the world. These groups lie about and libel their targets and they get away with it because of the clueless mainstream media who just repeat their claims and even give them a platform in the media like this guy Stephen Silverman of the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, who's allowed to spout his and his network's lies without any real challenge, to talk about anti-Semitism rising in an attempt to justify greater efforts and changes in law to crack down on anti-Semitism, which really means crack down on legitimate exposure and questioning of the Israeli regime and Zionism. The British Labour Party, the opposition party in Britain, were targeted by the CAA, especially Jeremy Corbyn, and I talk about that in episode 10. I talk more about these Zionist groups in general in episode 34. One of these Zionist groups is called the Community Security Trust. They're an organization which had ludicrously registered as a charity. They make their money from protecting the Jewish community from anti-Semitic abuse. They say, that's their official line, and yet they're always claiming anti-Semitism is on the rise. They have income, according to the government's Charity Commission page, in the UK, of large amounts of money. Conflict of interest, anyone? A large amount of their income is spent on being very organised in stamping out anti-Semitism, when their real goal is to stamp out criticism and questioning of the Israeli regime and Zionism. The simple fact is that with these attacks on people criticising and questioning Israel, is that what we're looking at is a protection racket. Not protection of Jewish people, but protection of the Israeli regime and Zionism, and its global reach in not just politics, but global banking, media, social media, and Silicon Valley, which is driving the transhuman agenda and the censorship of free speech agenda. Zionism is everywhere, 
And that's what this censorship and protection racket is really all about. And if Zionism's global influence and reach was revealed, so much else would be revealed. And the global elite network behind world affairs and its structure would be unraveled. And that's only going to happen if people refuse to be silenced on this and speak up and speak out now. And the final subject this week is smart meters and dementia patients. This is in the Daily Mail. Dementia patients to be tracked by smart meters so that doctors can monitor any sudden changes that indicate illness, falls or mental decline. The NHS is to use energy smart meters to monitor dementia patients in their homes. The devices will track patients' daily routines, such as when they boil the kettle, cook dinner, or turn the washing machine on. They will flag up any sudden change in behavior which could indicate an illness, a fall, or a decline in their mental state. The meters will be able to send alerts to family members or carers who can pop round to check if the patient is alright. Experts say the devices will enable patients to live independently for longer without going into care and prevent avoidable admissions to A&E. Smart meters monitor households' energy use in real time and send the readings directly to suppliers putting an end to estimated bills. Ministers have promised to install the devices in every home by 2020 to reduce energy consumption, but the rollout is massively over budget and behind schedule. Good. Privacy campaigners warn that the meters will hand suppliers a honeypot of data which could be sold on to marketing firms or fall into the hands of hackers. There's something far worse than privacy concerns, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. The article goes on. Researchers at Liverpool John Moores University and the Merseycare NHS Trust plan to carry out the initial dementia trial on 50 patients beginning in October. This will test the ability of the meters to monitor patients' health and the general progression of their disease, if successful. The trial will be extended to involve a 1,000 patients across four NHS trusts. The smart meters involved in the dementia study can monitor patients' energy use every 10 seconds. They will be connected to a central computer system which will learn patients' daily routines, such as when they normally use certain electrical appliances. Any sudden changes, such as not boiling the kettle at the same time each morning or turning lights on in the middle of the night, will trigger an alert. Dr. Carl Chalmers of Liverpool John Moores University, who is leading the trial, said the devices had huge potential to improve dementia patients' lives. About 850,000 people in the UK have dementia. Why? And this number is expected to double over the next 30 years as the population ages. I'll just read that again, so you can take it in. About 850,000 people in the UK have dementia, and this number is expected to double over the next 30 years as the population ages. Why? Why are so many people ill? The article goes on. Up to 70% of care home residents have the condition and an estimated 50,000 dementia patients are admitted to A&E each year as a result of preventable illnesses. Dr. Chalmers said, this is probably the most convincing piece of technology I've seen. This is massive. The potential of this is huge. It's not just for dementia, but anybody with a long-term medical condition such as depression or schizophrenia. That's a great point that you watch smart meters be rolled out to elderly people in general. Start with dementia patients, then elderly people with other conditions, and then elderly people in general. Just expand and expand and expand. That's the way these things go. The article goes on. Dr. Sudeep Sikdar, a consultant. That's an appropriate name, isn't it? Dr. Sikdar. A consultant psychiatrist at Merseycare NHS Trust added, With dementia patients, one of their biggest problems is a failure to carry out daily activities. 
nearly a third of dementia patients live on their own and they may have carers or they may have family members who visit a couple of times a week and monitor them. We often find it takes a week or two before someone notices if they deteriorate. If you can intervene early, put in the care package, then the patient would not need to go into a care home. It's preventing both hospital admissions and placements in care homes, both of which are extremely expensive. You see, they can't tell people why they really want them to have smart meters because nobody would go for it. So the way they always do it is sell the benefits, or the alleged benefits anyway at least. The article goes on. The trial will initially involve dementia patients who live on their own in the Merseyside region. Researchers have applied for funding from the Department of Health and will learn in April if they have been successful. They plan to launch the trial either way as they have interest in private companies willing to pay the costs. I wonder who those private companies are. Sally Copley of the Alzheimer's Society said pioneering ideas like smart meters are to be welcomed. However, while technology can be invaluable, it must complement rather than replace the human touch to enhance quality of life for people with dementia. Well, as I've talked about before, replacing the human touch is a very good description of where the addiction to technology in society is designed to go. In ways I explain in episode 11. The article goes on. Martin James, a consumer rights expert, said finding new and creative ways to support vulnerable people in their own homes is a good thing, but this proposal opens the door to a huge range of privacy concerns. We should be extremely wary when it comes to allowing businesses and organisations access to this level of data, and the fact that it can be taken in this level of detail raises the question, what else is technology revealing about our private lives and what if it falls into the wrong hands? Well, that's a very valid question, but the point is this. People who would look at this and say, as this article points out, some of the very same people who say that will be giving the intelligence agencies through the intelligence agencies' fundamental connection to Silicon Valley, through Facebook, through Twitter, through YouTube, every day, all the information on them you'd ever want. I talk about the fundamental connection between the intelligence arena and Silicon Valley in episode 19. And in episode 27, I talk about how Silicon Valley now has the greatest level of censorship and surveillance power the world has ever seen. I understand the desire to keep tabs on elderly relatives, but it's how you do it. That's the point. Smart meters are another layer of the surveillance network being built all around us. However, as I said, while the privacy and surveillance concerns are valid, the biggest concern with smart meters is another wireless technology in general but while we're talking about smart meters the radiation emitted by the technology i talk about smart meters in episode one and episode 17 and i talk about wireless technological radiation also in episode 44 part two i see all the time with these articles they'll just focus on the privacy concerns but the real concern is the radiation and there is an agenda to irradiate the planet and the atmosphere. And this is playing out through technological radiation, communication masts, nuclear power stations. They're all contributing to this agenda. And one of the reasons for the radiation agenda is depopulation. But another reason is to mutate the human form, and specifically the DNA, to tune it into the frequency range of the smart grid, also known as the transhuman cloud to totally connect humans to the cloud, not just through the mind, as I explain in more detail in episode 11, which I called The Last Temptation of Humans. Very appropriate name for reasons I explained in that episode. But also on the level of DNA. I talk about DNA more in episode 24. 
The first article talks, without realizing it of course, about the Internet of Things, a name coined by ex-CIA director David Petraeus. The Internet of Things involves everything being connected to the Internet. Home appliances are connected to the Internet as part of the Internet of Things. It's not about convenience, it's about control. Convenience does not equal freedom. I've talked before about the surveillance grid being built all around us, and already in place to a large extent, in episode 44 and its fundamental implications for human freedom, and its fundamental implications for human freedom. Instead of finding ways to deal with the problem of dementia or other mental illness, how about asking the question, what's causing it? But then, if people did that, as with the genuine investigation into paedophilia in Hollywood and the entertainment industry in general, revelations would abound that the establishment and elite don't want. Dementia results from brain cell death, it's never mentioned in the mainstream that, as I've talked about in episode 37, the role that artificial sweeteners play in affecting brain cells. Artificial sweeteners that are in food and drink products, like Coca-Cola, for example. It's never mentioned that chemtrails, which I've talked about in episode 44, part 2, contain aluminium, which drops to the ground and is absorbed by people and that aluminium has been speculated to cause dementia. In fact, a study by biologists at Keele University and Sussex University found large amounts of aluminium contamination in bee pupae, and bees have been found to suffer dementia because of this aluminium contamination, according to the study. Where is the aluminium coming from? Yes, aluminium is used widely, but in terms of bees being contaminated with it, where is it coming from? I suggest chemtrails. There's an agenda reason why we're seeing bees dying, and I talk about that in episode 8. To the average journalist or person, there would seem to be no connection between human-caused climate change, the scam of human-caused climate change, and dementia. But there is, because it's been suggested, as an article I featured in episode 44 talks about, geoengineering, which includes chemtrails, may be possible and necessary to save the planet. Well, it's possible because they're doing it all the time. It's just that now they're starting to publicly suggest doing it. And in terms of what's being justified by the human caused climate change scam, there's a fundamental connection between chemtrails and the smart grid, which I mentioned earlier, which I explained in episode 44. This article is yet another reminder of how clueless the mainstream media is of the truth of what they're reporting. The media tells you what's happening, at least up to a point anyway, but they don't tell you why it's happening. Not least because the vast majority of journalists haven't got a clue. They just take the official line and repeat it. Other journalists will know a certain amount because they actually investigate what they're reporting. But they won't be able to get it in the papers or on the television or radio anyway. So while they work in the mainstream, they might as well not know. There's a few different ways to look at this article. One, oh, that's good. It's a great way to help keep tabs on elderly relatives and dementia patients. Two, oh, that's good. It's a great way to help keep tabs on elderly relatives and dementia patients. But I am slightly concerned by the possible privacy issues. Three, and this is where I'm coming from, smart meters are another layer of the smart grid emit harmful radiation and this is yet another step towards building the surveillance state and depopulation, the depopulation agenda I've talked about many times in the pay-per-view before. 
and the reason for the depopulation agenda, which is playing out in many and various ways across society. I talk about in episode 11. That's the chasm between the first two and what I'm talking about now. And that chasm is those who've just accepted what they've been told through the media or in terms of the journalists, what they've been told officially. And those who've actually researched beyond the mainstream. The average mainstream journalist and person, therefore, would think one of the first two Whereas those who actually do their research and look at information beyond the official line would see the truth of the situation is number three. That's the difference between the mainstream media and those who research beyond the mainstream and beyond the official line. And it's that chasm which makes the mainstream media largely irrelevant in terms of reporting the world and changes in society. This is also in the Daily Mail. Most patients don't want to see their GPs online and prefer face-to-face appointments. Watchdog finds in a blow to the government's push for digital services. Most patients are not interested in online GP services and want to stick to face-to-face consultations, researchers found. They're worried about privacy, the security of their data, and not knowing the doctor on the screen. The findings by Consumer Watchdog, which will be a blow to the government's drive to push digital services, which form a central part of long-term plans for the NHS. Some 96% of patients would not be likely to switch from their current doctor to an online GP service in the next 12 months, the poll of 1,500 people found, and 52% said they would definitely not change their current arrangements. Some 23% said GP consultations should only ever be available face-to-face. Most patients, 69%, said they were worried about privacy, 66% about technology glitches, and 62% about explaining their problems over the internet rather than face-to-face. Health Secretary Matt Hancock wants all GP practices to offer digital appointments via smartphone or computer webcam by 2021. He insists the move, part of his plan to modernise technology across the NHS, will free up GP time and be more convenient for patients. And he has enthusiastically championed the Babylon Health app, which can avoid the need for face-to-face consultations. Last year, Mr Hancock admitted he does not even have his own GP. He instead uses the Babylon app in which symptoms are typed in. GP leaders have repeatedly raised concerns about the push for more virtual consultations, stressing that they risk missing serious, less obvious symptoms that doctors pick up when they see patients in person. But digital services, computerised, online, is the way it's going because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And this is another step towards AI taking over everything. However, as it's the 50th episode, let's finish on... An encouraging note, I don't do this very often, I think I have done it once or twice, but let's have an encouraging article, a hopeful article. This is in the Daily Mail, this is from the 10th of January this year. We can't hit our target to install smart meters in every home by the end of the year, admits Energy Minister. An Energy Minister has finally admitted that a target to install an energy smart meter in every home by the end of the year cannot be met. The project has descended into fires with spiralling costs, delays and tech problems. Smart meters should provide real-time information on both electricity and gas used to customers and energy firms via transmissions over a system similar to the mobile phone network. But six years after the start of the programme, just one in four homes, or 12.8 million, have a smart meter. Now the Energy Minister Claire Perry has admitted that 
based on the best estimates. No more than 70-75% of homes will be offered one by the end of next year. She accepted the installation was behind schedule but described them as absolutely vital. Adding the original plan which was set out in 2009 was ambitious and we have seen slippage in deadlines. They're absolutely vital. Bollocks they are. See, Energy Minister Claire Perry won't have a clue what smart meters really are and the health effects of them and what they're really being used for. So just parrot the official line. Just like a journalist does. They're like the journalist that wrote this article. They don't know, they're just repeating. Smart meters are justified by human-caused climate change, except that human-caused climate change is a massive scam, as I've said. Her officials confirm that meters are being installed at a rate of 4 to 5 million a year, but this must double to get to 75% of homes by the end of 2020. MPs on the Commons Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Select Committee are investigating. The National Audit Office has warned that the total cost to the UK is expected to rise to 500 million to 11.5 billion with costs added to customers' bills. The National Audit Office has warned that the total cost to the UK is expected to rise by 500 million pounds to 11.5 billion pounds with costs added to customers' bills. Another reason to get a smart meter. The fact that they say they're not going to be able to hit their target is very encouraging and I would hope that at least in part it's to do with people becoming aware of the dangers of smart meters and maybe even the wider context of smart meters. Because if it's not that, then it means that there are customers out there now who don't have smart meters who may be persuaded to get one later on. So I would hope that it's because people are becoming aware of the truth of smart meters. But it's encouraging nonetheless, at least for the moment, and a very hopeful way to end the 50th episode. I want to say thank you for listening, not just to this episode, but to the other 49. There's no point doing it if people aren't going to listen to it. Thank you for getting it to this point, and here's to the 100th episode. So, that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contest and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.